insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Hey, welcome to Triple-I, Insights into Instruction. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Fabulous, but you can call me Thomas. This week we covered chapter two of the textbook, Culturally and Linguistically Responsive Teaching and Learning, Classroom Practices for Student Success by Shiroki Holly, second edition. Like last week, we were asked to pause to ponder. Being that there is no assignment prompt this week, we have chosen five ponderings to delve into during this episode. As we are heading into practicum in the next few weeks, all of the ponderings we chose are classroom related with a focus on pedagogical aspects. We mentioned the term pedagogy a lot in our last episode, but if you're unfamiliar, per the text, pedagogy is defined as the how and why of teaching. We are excited to learn how to balance the why and how through this chapter, as well as with our firsthand experience in the near future. So we will start this episode in the same manner as the last by reading the answers from our anticipation guide that we completed before reading the chapter. At the end, we will provide our answers and discuss any changes we may have made due to a deeper understanding of the reading. So the anticipation guide says, what thoughts come to mind when you read the title of this chapter, which the title is The Pedagogy of Cultural and Linguistic Responsiveness. So the first question is, culturally and linguistic responsive pedagogy is curriculum. And for me, I did not agree with that. Um, I didn't agree with it either because it doesn't, it's not the how and the why. Yeah, I also disagreed with it and my thoughts were along the same lines, but also that culturally and linguistic responsive pedagogy, it doesn't necessarily cover, say, science or math. And so that's something that would be in the curriculum that's not in the pedagogy. Mm-hmm. The second question is, in using CLR, I should abandon what I have known to be successful with students. I, I said disagree on this one. I also disagreed. I disagreed as well for the same reasons you guys stated. The one caveat I could see is if something you thought was successful with students was only successful for your typical students and wasn't helping underserved students or neurodivergent students because then you need to unlearn that material. And I disagreed because they have, you have your knowledge of what you've learned and more cultural linguistic response is all about integrating what you have known and also being aware of what you don't know and integrating those two things together. Um, so that's why I disagree. And then the next question is, CLR strategies and activities can be infused into broad instructional areas. And I definitely said agree on that one. Me too. So did I. The next one says, all the activities or strategies must always be culturally and linguistically responsive. <laughs> Again, that always, I put agree slash disagree. I agree with it. Because that's the goal, is for everything to be, you're supposed to be responsive to the culture linguistically. But you also could disagree because it doesn't always have to be there. But my personal preference would be agree because I would love to always teach with having that mindset. Right. I agreed as well. And my thought on it was even in areas where you don't think that CLR is present, eventually if you're applying it to everything else, it'll be like muscle memory, Mm -hmm. ideally. And so even if you're not thinking that it's integrated it probably is yeah so my my reason for the last answer is because that always makes me kind of shy away from it but i do agree that we should always be culturally and linguistically responsive but what i was thinking my mind was telling me that we could use activities and strategies 
that show that not everybody is. So using that for a specific reason, because it's not something that you're going to find in everyday life Mm -hmm. and explaining why and Mm -hmm. how you could take that situation and sort of mold it into something that then could be a teaching moment using CLR. So it was, it was like a, I thought of it really weird. Yeah. I was like, yes, you should, but you won't always be. So how can we show where they might not always see that? But again, because I'm using that as a teaching point to be culturally and linguistically right. responsive, I guess it's still I'm agreeing. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I can see where it could be not all the time, but I would always want, like like I said, my goal is for it to be right. yeah. continuous. Not, and not all the time, but with a purpose. With the purpose. Like mm-hmm. you're understanding why you're using or you may not be using it during that aspect. Right. Which then... In- Intern is actually really using. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Last week, we learned about the philosophy behind culturally and linguistically responsive teaching. This week, as we start our dive into the pool of cultural and linguistic responsiveness, Cherokee asks us some leading questions regarding pedagogical areas. As we soon learn, they are not nearly as cerebral or intimidating as we've been made to believe. The pondering thought for this section asks, what does the term pedagogical area suggest to you? In what way do you think pedagogical areas should be designed to meet the needs of underserved students? In what ways do you talk to, relate to, and teach your students that are validating and affirming? So when I first thought about this term, I didn't actually know what it meant. So I had to break down the word. So I know that pedagogy means how and why, and then the area which you're teaching the how and why. So that's how I came up with the term myself. Um, And then reading on to the next section, I found out that I was correct. And the ways that I thought about the pedagogical area is it's supposed to help bridge the gap where you understand all of the things to help them relate to what they're doing. And then also to meet the needs of underserved children, you, you come with that aspect, that knowledge from behind of what is going on to make them underserved and in translating that into your how and why. And this can come in areas of helping you with classroom management, the words you say, the things you introduce in the classroom, and then the environment which it's in. And then I would use that to then validate and affirm, like, I understand that they are at the place where they're at, but I also want to help validate that they're there and then affirm that they can move on to the next steps, then their next goals, to the next progression of learning wherever they are, whether that be low or medium or high or wherever it is on the spectrum of their learning. I would like to validate where they are and then affirm that they're going to progress with trying and doing everything that they need to do. Yeah. My thought of what this meant was totally different than what I read it to be. So I started out with a pedagogical area being actually a physical area. I swear I take things too logically, too literally. (laughs) So I was thinking, oh, so in the classroom, your pedagogical area is that spot that you stand but it shouldn't be the spot that you stand you should move around the classroom you should go from group to group you should teach in the hallway teach in the office teach in zoom teach outside of your school to family and friends and that's what i took it originally but then i read you know it's the how and the why and the what so my my mentality switched over and i started thinking about how i would relate to students differently and how i would do that being culturally and linguistically responsive to each and every one so i was looking at the way that you 
interact and understand. So taking time to support their specific needs mm -hmm. by gaining information about their past and about their culture and about everything about them, honestly. And then through respect, you can validate. So you may not be perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. Nope. But you can be open to learning and you can be open to developing your relationships with their family, with them, with anything that really is close to their culture and can help you understand them. So asking questions and listening to learn. And I thought that that was something that I could do to valid validate and affirm that I wanted to know about them in order to help move them forward and support them. Speaking on that, the way you were saying validate where they are, I think everyone has their innate ability to want to grow. Mm -hmm. And I think if the child and the, the family is on that understanding that you want them to grow and that they have that connection, that bond with you to be able to grow, and then maybe you you know what students, over time we will gain the abilities to know what student, where students are and where they should be going, but also making the student, where do they want to go? Mm -hmm. Where do they want to, like, what do they want to do? Where they want to become this, let's say they're really great at drawing and want to become this amazing drawer. How do we facilitate that and use their, they could be coming from somewhere culturally, and how do we take that and progress that, but also still teaching them all the stuff that they need to know to be able to get a full, real-wounded learning, but also maybe that be the focus point of they're creating their own graphic novel, per yeah, se, definitely. or, some, or something like that. You like their interests and their wants and needs to facilitate your academic learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, using their why. I remember the teacher that I appreciate the most, and it's probably what put me on the path for teaching. She let us facilitate an endangered species club at lunchtime because that was my thing. I was like so surprised by the idea that humans were killing off animals until they were dead. And so she let me use their printer. I ran full meetings about like the environment and we should be taking less shorter showers. I don't know. It was a whole thing in my fourth and fifth grade class. And that was because she validated and affirmed all of her students. And she did that with everybody, not just the high academic achievers. It sounded like she took y'all's, wa your wants and your passion and projected that forward. Yes, and she was also very vulnerable about things herself. She's the one who ran the, I think it was called Drug Free Club at the elementary school. And that was because in part, she was very open about the fact that her eldest son had passed away from substance abuse. Oh, wow. So that I think that vulnerability speaks a lot to validating and affirming your own students because then they can relate to you and know what they're experiencing isn't isolated. And we're all human, so mm -hmm. we we'll all go through struggle, whether that be adult struggles or children's mm -hmm. struggles, it's still a struggle. Mm -hmm. And then seeing that, that vulnerability within that teacher projects that students can also be vulnerable because exactly. they're human and adults are human and we're all humans learning this big world together. Mm -hmm. Right, being vulnerable yourself Mm -hmm. so that they can be vulnerable back. And they know it's accepted to be vulnerable. Yeah. Modeling. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's authentic. Truly authentic. Oh, and I guess to build on the actual formal question as we went down that rabbit hole of emotions, what pedagogical area the term made me think of was a school of thought. It made me think about how different teachers might kind of belong to different pedagogical areas in the idea of how they go about their methodology because I remember there being very, very strict teachers and kind of imagined them in one pedagogical area versus teachers with different approaches being in another one, which is sort of true, but the book went far more in depth than my original thought process. As far as how to help best with undisturbed students in pedagogy, as Thomas and Jamie have already mentioned, I think just keeping them in mind, not operating everything off of this weird standard that we have in education. There is no default student. 
And so you have to think about every single student in your design process and every single possibility that might you might have not even experienced yet. Because teaching, sorry. Oh, you're all good. Teaching to the individual. The thing yes. that I always say, there is no default student. I love mm -hmm. that. I love that phrase. And I love the fact that you said spectrum because the learning is a spectrum mm -hmm. and you're you're on that spectrum and you're not teaching to the test or the standard. Right. You're teaching to the student the individual and the individuality of your classroom. Exactly, because it's never going to be the same. You can get new types of students every year. Even if you're in the same community, that doesn't mean you're going to have the same type of learners. doesn't mean they're all going to have the same values. There's so much coming into the classroom that you have to keep in mind. Ideally, a government shouldn't create rules based off of what one white man thinks. But <laughs> I've taught preschool for 10 years, and I can never say that one class was ever the same. Mm -hmm. and, and the way I taught the classroom was never the same, mm -hmm. because each child had their individual needs and individual wants and desires. And also, when you get that many individual personalities, you have to be flexible within your thinking. And it's your teaching. I've, I've had one classroom that was as mellow as can be, I don't know how, but three-year-olds. And then the very next year, it was completely opposite. That We had very physical, very gross motor-driven children. And we have we were active most of the time. Mm -hmm. Like I lost so much weight that year. I'd <laughs> <laughs> be interested to see with that is what comes down to social dynamic because I remember especially in upper elementary, which I know wasn't your age, but if one kid who was on the upper levels of the social world, if they behaved in a certain way, more other students would start acting in that same way. So I wonder how much of it's like this group mentality. Oh, scaffolding is such a huge deal when it comes to helping students. If you have such a diverse abilities in the classroom, mm -hmm. other students build off of those abilities to progress their own individuality, mm -hmm. but also giving their own funds of knowledge and their own abilities to help them also scaffold where like not necessarily deficient but more of where they are and how mm -hmm. they can progress so it's well, like our trio here we all have different things and different backgrounds mm -hmm. and all of those gaps are filled by the other person personally yeah i feel like mm -hmm. the gaps of knowledge or the gaps of experience or the gaps of whatever it may the be. gaps of thinking like the mm -hmm. thought the thought processes of all three of us have been right completely like, different how oh yeah <laughs> completely differently but then kind of came back and we're like oh so this is where this makes sense because of what everybody else contributed right and it works because we have mutual respect for each other because if anybody has the idea that their way is the only right way that's where we have issues and we wouldn't be able to do what we do mm -hmm. right now because we are we wouldn't be able to listen to each other very different we did not respect each other's cultures and differences we wouldn't be in <laughs> this wouldn't be happening chaos. Right? <laughs> utter chaos <laughs> In this subsection labeled The Gatekeepers of Success, Dr. Holly describes ways that CLR philosophies can be integrated into classroom activities. They also go into four categories based on pedagogy, covering how to be culturally responsive in classroom management. They also go into four categories based on pedagogy, covering how to be culturally responsive in a classroom management, academic vocabulary, academic literacy, and academic language. This upcoming question focuses on the first category of classroom management, the use of CLR pedagogy and your connections with students. The next pondering thought we will discuss is, how does CLR pedagogy strengthen the interrelationship between classroom management and effective learning? I feel like by meeting your students where they are, they talk about that on um, page 58, the 
the pool metaphor, yes. you're able to keep helping them build themselves from the ground up, basically, mm -hmm. and wherever they may be on that ground. But you're basically ensuring that you know where they are so that you can teach to the individual, just like I was saying before, but that scaffolding, that ensuring that they are in their ZPD, their zone of proximal development, mm -hmm. I think is a huge part of that. And we were talking about this before in the last question and kind of went over this already, but doing things like this is just helping provide this effective learning. And when kids learn effectively, the classroom management is easier. When they're in that zone of proximal development, they have less behavioral problems because they're getting that healthy dose of mm -hmm. what we talk about, that productive struggle. Mm -hmm. So they're engaged and their brains are working and they're not thinking about how bored they are. and <laughs> so Or how difficult it may be. Or yeah. how hard it is. Right. Yeah. It's like they're constantly in the yellow if we're talking about our feelings. Like they're yes. constantly not struggling, but challenged. Yes. But in a healthier way, not mm -hmm. uh, in a way that like, oh my goodness, I can't do this and like rage quit. Or the opposite of like, I'm, I'm so bored. bored. I'm looking out the window. Please stop talking to me. Counting the dots on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, but like, oh my goodness. Okay. Oh, look how many stars I see today. Like that right? type of scenario. And the other element of CLR pedagogy is the idea of really understanding your students and making sure they're validated and affirmed, like we talked about before. And I know personally, when a teacher is both challenging and makes it obvious that they get you, or at least has the intent to understand you, I'm much more willing to learn than a teacher who doesn't practice empathy, stands in front of the classroom, and just has standards that are way over our heads. So I think that's something to keep in mind, too. As Jamie mentioned, it comes down to it really helps the learning. It's not just about their emotions, but when their emotions are tended to, they can learn better. Hierarchy of needs. Yes. Um, and then when I thought about this, I thought about actual like management, the classroom itself as an environment. And I thought about ESOL's class or English as second language class. And I thought about how I would set up the classroom to be a strength for our English language learners. So like labeling everything with words that are not only in our language, but their language, their home language, as well as providing stuff that makes them feel at ease in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So bringing stuff from the culture into the classroom, mm -hmm. depending on what that culture may look like. Because I know I'll bring my culture into the classroom and I want them to feel as they can bring part of their home. Like this, the classroom is a little community for everyone, mm -hmm. not just me, not just one particular student, but for every unique culture we have in that classroom. A piece of home. Yeah, because yeah. like when I go into a classroom, what the first thing I do is I look for similarity. What mm -hmm. is in that classroom that I can relate to, whether that be a person, that be the teacher themselves, or somewhere in the classroom like that puts myself at ease. When I was a student in elementary, I would always look for anything mystical or magical because I was really into mystic or magic. Mm -hmm. So I'd look for that one book that would I'd be waiting to first uh, independent reading to be able to read or looking for a student that may have like a Harry Potter logo or something so Definitely. I can find that connection because I was new, especially moving to this area. I was from the South, so I didn't have anything culturally in this area. And then while reading this, I brought one tech, one quote about the management. Students need to learn in a safe, secure, and positive environment that is conductive to learning and enables them to function optimally. And I love the word opt optimally. Like we're, we're trying to create a space. We're creating a instruction that helps children feel as safe as possible to be able to have that optimal learning. And I think that's the only way students will be able to learn is if, they're, if we're working at peak efficiency. Like not necessarily, it's not a production line, but we are teaching standards and we do have to teach them. So making sure that we have a classroom that is 
responsive to them as an individual. Definitely. Because back to this metaphor, like not drowning and swimming are two completely different things. (laughs) (laughs) In the following section, we go even further into academic vocabulary, academic literacy, and academic language. Although a few of these terms sound super similar, they all have different roles in the classroom. This section tied heavily into some pre-existing knowledge from our other courses this term. Knowledge around children's literature, teaching ELL students, and diversity in education that Shiraki Holly's work tied together in a way where classroom application was visible. The next pondering thought asks, in what ways do you think instructional activities for vocabulary, academic literacy, and academic language overlap? What opportunities do your students have to discuss what they are learning and be themselves culturally and linguistically? What is your most frequent way of having students respond to your questions in a whole group setting? I think one of the most obvious ways that we could see instructional activities for vocab, academic literacy, and academic language overlap would be in story time. It's one of my favorite things growing up and it's something we've touched on a lot this term. I think it's also a great place for CLR to be present. Of course, CLR should be present in everything, but I think story time is one of the most obvious ways to do it. And it's a way where students, I feel like, would feel less uncomfortable because it's a fun escape, or at least it was for me as a kid. So I think that's one of the best ways for vocab, academic literacy, and academic language to overlap because we see the vocab in that you could read them a more complex book than they could read by themselves. Academic literacy, it could be touching on a subject you're already learning about, like say about the weather or something, and then academic language, once again, in that same way. And it would be in such an informal way that students who are learning English wouldn't feel as uncomfortable because they're not being asked to do anything other than listen. So that was my first thought process as far as the overlap. And then what opportunities do your students have to discuss what they are learning and be themselves culturally and linguistically? I think small groups are probably the best for this. I didn't see it very much until I got into middle school and high school, which was weird because I think small group discussions should be happening much younger because it's a way to grow. And I mean, just look at the three of us. I'm learning way more through this discussion than I would on my own. And I've been lucky enough to see in lower elementary schools when I was volunteering that that small group is happening. And different personalities come out of their kids in small groups than Mm -hmm. in group. It's really interesting to see. What is your most frequent way of having students respond to your questions in a whole group setting? Now, this one's fun because I almost think in a whole group, if you have everybody talk, it can be really time consuming. So I'm liking what we're seeing as far as the different physical hand motions you can do to say that you agree with something or to show your opinion on something. I think that's a really interesting way. And we can work movement in that way, stand up or sit down. I would agree with that as well. And then when I go back and I think about what instructional activities for vocabulary, academic literacy, and academic language overlap, I always like to start my lesson with a story mm-hmm. and then use that language we use from the story into the lesson for the next activity. So let's say we're doing, we're learning about the ocean and how to keep it safe. I would read a story about things that are happening within our ocean, like pollution, and then use those same words in our lesson And then also I will have those words up in the classroom so we constantly have that visual, not just in the book, but take that, those words and teach the children that doesn't just exist in this book, but it also exists outside this book and how to conceptualize it. And then after we read the book, have some pondering thoughts about 
what that might look like, what's causing the pollution, what areas in the book was telling us about this pollution. Have you been seeing any pollution at home? What do you do to keep water safe at home? And you ask all these questions and then basically make a map from that and then go into a like an, a physical activity mm-hmm. that has the students sit at different tables, maybe three or four to a group, and then while they're working on this activity, have a discussion about the activity, try to stay on point. I know the younger the students are, the harder it is to stay on that point, mm-hmm. but at least you're giving them the option to have that conversation. And if it goes in that way, sure. But if it doesn't, it's okay. We just mm-hmm. did have a huge group. And so when they, when we're talking about, and that's uh, going back to that large group, since that's the last question, to how I'll have them respond. Sometimes I do the physical movements, but then I, I have little stick figures. So I'll pick a random mm-hmm. stick and I'll say, okay, I'm picking only five students to answer this question. And then let them know that they have the five. So I don't have, I'm not choosing all of them at once, but also each one has the opportunity to have a voice. And then I will never return those five sticks to the bucket. I will mm-hmm. then choose five more different sticks. Mm-hmm. And then as we have in our 305 class, we have the option to pass. They, all, they don't have to respond. They also can say it in their native home language, and I will do my best to be able to interpret and respond to that because I want them all to feel included, even if their English is not their first language. I brought up literacy circles, and so discussions regarding textbooks can be a really good opportunity for students to not only have like that conversational, but they have that academic language. Mm-hmm. And then especially if you're having to explain something to someone else, this is what I got from this part, this is what I thought this word meant, this is what, and and then bouncing that back and forth between each other saying, oh, well, this is what I thought the word meant, what does that word mean? So you're getting to, hopefully you're all getting to the same place, but the, as a teacher, you're walking around and saying, oh, well, this is what that means. Mm-hmm. That is, that's a really interesting way that you looked at this word or this phrase, and let me explain what it means to you, because you are supposed to be moving from group to group mm-hmm. to group. And then opportunities, I said, I think that sometimes there's only, the only place that they are able to have these types of conversations are at school. But others have parents at home, and they talk about it with them. It just depends on the individual, it depends on the household, as well as the culture and how appropriate it may be to do so. So opening up these conversations may be, this is the only time they're getting it, is in the classroom. And then the most frequent way of having students respond, I said that it really depends on the situation. So mm-hmm. you can have those, raise your hand. You can have those moments where it's a shout out. Mm-hmm. You can have the moments where you circle circle up and pass around your, your mascot or whatever. I yeah. just have a little mascot that they got to choose names and Or the and spirit all of that. stick. <laughs> we, yeah. had a, we, had a, we had a talking stick, but it was a spirit stick. Spirit stick. But I want one that can make rain. Oh yeah, the rain sticks, yeah. I've had those too. Basically what I was saying is that you can give students a heads up on this activity is going to be this type of process before you go into it. So giving a little, this is how we're going to run this, sort of a pre-activity directional kind of thing. And then when you were talking about teaching in small groups, I had a thought. My thought was to get empower the students, teach two students the information, mm-hmm. but then have those two students go teach another student. Yeah. And then circle about around with those students and see what they gained from the other student. Make them be the pioneers and teachers of their own learning, yeah. but also scaffolding their abilities to be able to convey the lesson. Of course, that would look different for each age group and however, how old and the, how mm-hmm. complex it may be. But that thought came into my mind when you were talking about that. Like that single word. That and single how word. Got to this answer and what it means. Yeah. And, well, yeah. how cool would it be to let them go be. Pure teacher. Pure teacher mm-hmm. and go and teach another student if they want to. 
and that could be look different. Like you can give them jobs and stuff to mm-hmm. do. Are you willing to share? Mm-hmm. Well, I talking about jobs. That's something that I did every single day in my classroom. I had them mm-hmm. pick out jobs that mm-hmm. they would do, and it was different because it was a bucket, and you had your whatever, however many jobs you need to do, and that was your job for the day, so that you feel like you're in control of something in your classroom, but mm-hmm. that it's fair because, well, if you randomly get the same one two days in a row, it's a random choice, and you'll get something new. You're not going to get it every single day. Yeah. But that empowers the students to feel like they are in control of their own environment and that they have a job and that they have a purpose to be in there that day. And, you know, this is my job for the day. And it can be the same in their learning. You mm-hmm. know, this is your job for the day. You get to be the recorder like we do in our classroom. You get to be the recorder. You get to be the presenter. You get to be this. You all go in your group and you, you all get to decide mm-hmm. which one you're going to be. Mm-hmm. I love that. We, we had jo- I had jobs every single day. Yes. And they, they loved being the managers of that job. And mm-hmm. they got to control it. So sometimes with younger children led to the lights being turned off quite frequently and turned back <laughs> on quite frequently by the electrician, but mm-hmm. they were the electrician. And we talked about what does it mean when the lights are off? And I had one friend who was very sensory based and he didn't like it so well. And he got the electrician and he just started turning the lights off because when the lights went off, <laughs> we got quieter because the lights went down. So we, t- yeah. we, st- we talked in soft voices and it was a very signal uh, way. We never used it to quieten the classroom down. We used it in a way to like, if we're about to read, we would like turn down the lights, but he did not like it loud. So he turned the lights down just to help his own personal. And all the friends were like, oh, it must be too loud. And so they would get, they would just naturally so get so, quiet. Oh, yeah. They were so inclusive to that student. They didn't care the lights were going down. They're like, okay, we'll be quiet. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like, oh, he's turning the lights down it's, again. It's, it's because they, he, okay, the we student, need to do something for him. The <laughs> students knew that that's, the, that's what he needed. That's what, like, that's the resource that he needed to be able to cope. And it was just, it was lovely. It was. That's so nice. And the, the jobs were all specific because in other communities and other cultures, like for example, the Japanese culture, the students lead everything in the classroom. They help get ready for the meals for the day. They clean the classroom. They do all of these things that American students have no, like they rarely have janitors mm-hmm. in the middle school and high school in Japan, mm-hmm. but we do because they clean up. They, they have a different sense of environment and a sense of, responsibility to their room so respect respect yes space so and so it teaches them the same thing and to be just the pioneers of their day that they get to be in control of it's not Mm -hmm. just a teacher doing all the things for them our second to last section for this week's pondering focuses on a new concept called methodology continuum this is a sliding scale from traditional instruction to culturally responsive instruction All the elements along the continuum have a place in the classroom. It's just the time allotted to each one that moves classes along the scale. Teachers live in a time crunch. Dr. Holly's upcoming question made us reflect and think about how to balance multiple forms of instruction within a short amount of time, while also effectively teaching a concept to students. Now for the pondering thought. Consider your typical 20 to 30 minute block of instructional time. Plot your activities along the methodology continuum Are you meeting the needs of all your students? So when the prompt said, consider a typical 20 to 30 minute block of your instructional time. Once again, I felt like the question was a little vague because I feel like I would utilize different subjects differently. 
But with us mostly focusing on literature recently in our classes, I decided to think of it as an English lesson or literature lesson based off of the age. And so my thoughts were to start off with a question on the board uh, to have them think about while I introduce the topic either through a book or through a song. I really like how our Dr. Rocca introduces different stuff through song at the start of class. Something along those lines, a group discussion, and then to make it more of a responsive instruction, that's why I said group discussion. So start with a small, short lecture in my amount of time because I want to spend most of the time in the culturally responsive instruction zone, and I think that would most likely be done through small groups. And ideally, if the weather's nice, which who knows, living here in the Pacific Northwest, but I think going outside and allowing movement would be a really fun idea, especially if I had an activity planned that connected to learning, because I feel like kinesthetic learners are some of the least served. And so that's something I really want to focus on in my classroom. I brought in what I used to do or what I was trained to do and wanted to kind of flip it on its head because I think that I have fallen heavily into the traditional instruction, mm-hmm. sit, all lecture, whatever, and then we do something. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's too much time focused on that. So basically just like those past experiences and requirements, I definitely fall into more of a traditional instruction. But I didn't like that because I didn't like that when I was a student. I hated that, but somehow I still fell into that. I think that things that I do like are those hands-on. I'm really into STEM experiments. Mm -hmm. I find that those are probably the most successful things that I've ever done in my classroom because kids get to literally have hands-on experiment, see what things do, and then art forms. So using art to explain learning along with presentation on how or what it represents or whatever it may be because not only are they using their mind to create this thing and and figuring out oh what does this mean but then when they present it they're also having to use academic language and Mm -hmm. and they get two different parts of the learning experience just trying to figure out how to go from the traditional instruction to the responsive instruction to the culturally responsive instruction have that flow more and have that traditional instruction take less time than the culturally responsive instruction what i would do a lot of stuff i could do in 20 30 minutes and there's also not it's not enough time to do everything because i feel like our teaching is a continuum from the beginning of the day to always the end of the day kind of like how we do our classes with the three-hour blocks but I would always start with a book, and then I would also ask a question within the book. And then any big words that we don't know in the book, I will put up on the, a, a whiteboard and I will write them out. For this one, I said I'm going to do 30 minutes in construction, because everybody lives in a house or in a building of some sort. And so I will read a book based on that and like give words like foundation, wall, windows, and then have those be on the, uh, the board. And then after we read the book, then ask questions about what we don't know, what any of these may not mean to them, but after we read the book, we'll have those open discussion. Then I will have STEM materials for them, paper, they'll have their coloring markers. I'll ask them to draw what their, either what their house looks like or what their favorite building looks like. Leave it up to them what they would like to build. They can draw a picture of it, then label with the words for literacy and then move on to building, actually constructing their building out of cups, sticks, like popsicle sticks, pipe cleaners, all of the loose materials so they can then use kinesthetic learning to actually obtain all of the information, as well as using some of those math concepts like spatial awareness, also using the critical 
critical thinking of how I'm going to apply all the information I just learned to actually build a building of some sort. It may not look like a building, but in their mind, it will be their building. I do have a question about that. <clears throat> what happens if they live in a car? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I have had... That's why I also put, like, their favorite building. So right. So it doesn't yeah. apply to them. What if they're homeless? Right. Like, if, if there's some... Like, they could also choose our school to build. They could also choose mm-hmm. whatever connection. It could be, let's say, that they're from they're from the reservation and they have this... They love... The, like, they have a totem pole. And they love that totem pole. They could, they could build that. They could build whatever structure they would want to. Because I was thinking about including anyone who don't have a home. That's why I also said uh, their favorite building or the building they're the most Mm -hmm. connected to. Yeah. And that could be really cool for kids who have really specific interests about, say, another country or even a fictional land. Like, if you Mm -hmm. have a kid who's really into Harry Potter and they want to build Hogwarts, go Oh, let's build Hogwarts. Let's do it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm in. I'm down. (laughs) I wonder if you could use Minecraft, too, if you wanted to make it, like, virtual. Yeah, one of oh, our yeah, cohorts mm-hmm. did something like that for, for one of the assignments. It was the to stammer. use. Yep, it was to use Technology. Minecraft to wow. create. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be amazing. Yeah. Could you imagine a district who would let us build stuff on Minecraft for uh, for academic reasons? They have an academic Minecraft. Yeah, they do. <gasps> so no. you can. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. You, in the library right you have to go to the library to use those specific yes computers this is what happens when you teach young children for a very Mm -hmm. long time you like you get stuck in that that mindset like with youngers Mm -hmm. you don't want to give them as much screen time because it's not good for development Mm -hmm. but once you get older they're immersed in screen time because that's they have an ipad they have Mm -hmm. a chromebook they are using technology and so like taking my brain from a naturalistic approach and a whole like wholesome approach without like technology and then then using technology, so it's like uh, that. That bridge has to be gapped, and it's just—it's yes. not necessarily easy. Even though I'm a techno, I'm a very technological person, and I love technology itself. But that's the good thing about going into practicum is that we will go into different grade bands and see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because once you—I don't know—once you experience all of that and you get to see like those different things that that mm-hmm. other teachers are using, you mm-hmm. are going to see that it's it's very different from kindergarten. Yeah. you know, or preschool to middle school because mm-hmm. now they're developing new things and they do have to develop technology because technology is so important mm-hmm. going in. You need to be able to know how to use your computer. You need to know how to do things that you're going to need for a job. That's why the standards mm-hmm. are so expansive. And so like, they're, they're kind of open-ended, but at the same time, there are a lot of skills that you don't necessarily learn unless you're actually taught them. Definitely. And I love that technology is now used instead of just like looking up information. It's It's more of a tool and a resource that can actually be used to enhance education, which is something that I thoroughly enjoy. It's much more creative, too. It brings that added element to the classroom. Because some people can't not necessarily can afford the supplies it might mm-hmm. take to create a creation. But if we provide the technology that they use to be able to be artistically expressive in their own way on technology, exactly. then they don't need that actual like physical resource that they may be lacking because of X, Y, and Z. And they might like giving a PowerPoint better than giving a verbal speech. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Having that added element can make it. Or a even lot those who can't, life. like just thinking like our ELL mm-hmm. class, even those who can't speak can use pictures mm-hmm. to create a explanation of what they want to say mm-hmm. without, and it could be in their language that they're presenting. But we are also using our language to infer what they mean, mm-hmm. which is a great way to be inclusive because those children are a great asset to the classroom with their dual language. Yeah. 
I need to dive more into tech. It's definitely a yellow zone for me, but I know it's <laughs> useful. I can't wait to get to AR. I'm ready for a practicum. Let's do it. Yep, I'm ready to. I'm ready to code some robots. I'm excited. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Our final pause to ponder question touches on a hot topic in the world of education, movement. Although most schools of thought have moved away from the traditional view that students must be seated and silenced at all times, free movement is oftentimes still limited in the classroom. Movement is examined in this chapter as an example of how CLR pedagogy can be applied to pre-existing methodology to facilitate more vabbing. Our official question is, have you defined how often students should move about during class time? How are students' movements connected to instructional activities? What challenges do you anticipate as you provide opportunities for students to move about in the classroom? So I was thinking about this. Um, I think children should have the option to move at all times. Just because I don't sit, I used, I used to not sit a lot. Now, will I require, if we're doing this reading time, for them to be quiet and able to let all their friends listen and their peers listen? Yes. But are they able to get up and move around the room? Because yes, they can because the science has proven that they mm -hmm. still can learn. And mm -hmm. I learned by moving around. Even at the end of 20 minutes, I'm done. I'm ready to stand up. I'm ready to move. Mm -hmm. So I would uh, just be very mindful when I'm creating a curriculum during the day that there are built-in movement activities as well as thinking about how my activities can lend to movements. Mm -hmm. With that being said, is like if I have an activity that's at a table, how does that table set up? Is that table set up with four chairs, only four students can be there to make it so it like tasks for them to sit down and do the activity? Or do I have two chairs and two spots for them to stand up so they can move around and like wiggle and jiggle and move about? And that's more of like how I will connect it, as well as have intentional movement activities itself that if I can't or if I can create a curriculum with those already intended like we're going on a bear hunt or we're doing something that is actually related or am I having saying you know what we need a brain break we mm -hmm. need to get up we need to move because we've all been sitting down for way too long and then also like just being mindfully planning those in my day literally in my schedule that I will that I create there will be times that we are taking a break we are going to have a brain break, whether that is getting up and doing whatever that means. Mm -hmm. The challenge I anticipate when providing opportunities for children to move about the classroom, it's not necessarily that it'll be hard to do, it's with anything that you create in a classroom, standards that you would like for the students to follow. Not every student has those equal opportunities to have those rules be implemented. So having time for the first couple of months to actually mm -hmm. solidify those standards or rules mm -hmm. that the classroom will hold is so that they know that when they're if they're if we're all if if I'm talking and trying to do read a book that we are using or not we are using other cues than speaking out or moving about or making a bunch of noise so that we can be respectful to not only themselves but also the other peers and the teacher. But also providing those times for them to talk and move and stuff. So it's not just that instructional. I, I don't want to be a traditional instruction teacher. I would like to stay as a responsive instruction. So it's a lot of communicating back and forth. But it will be hard to communicate back and forth if I have one friend who's walking back and forth in the classroom screaming on the top of his lungs because he needs that sensory thing. So I have to find a way to help each student 
meet their needs. And that's what the ultimate goal is, is if that student needs to yell, am I opening the door letting them yell? Am I going to take a moment and say, okay, let's go. Let's, you can yell outside. That's where we yell. Mm-hmm. You need to get that out. Go ahead. Do it. Screaming pillow. My daughter has a screaming pillow or mm-hmm. just any pillow. But I'll be like, if you need to get it out and you need to get your like, whatever it is out, scream into a pillow so that the neighbors don't think I'm killing mm-hmm. you. And, <laughs> True story. and bang your, your body and whatever on something soft so you don't hurt yourself. Yeah. Verbal yeah. is so much better than physical in that sense because you will have kids. And also shop. adding those fidget things mm-hmm. in the classroom, yeah, those fidget sure. toys for them to be able to move around. And also, like, don't have traditional chairs. Have the movable wobble chairs mm, that, like, yeah. allow them to move around and be physical. Or, like Kim was telling us, that line in mm-hmm. the back of the classroom. They know that they can walk from that edge to that edge. Mm-hmm. As long as they don't go out the classroom like her son did. Yeah. <laughs> like, they know where, like, it takes a lot of time to set up those um, routines. Yes. And just being mindfully aware that it takes time. And they're not going to be learned. It's not going to be overlearned at night. And when they go on long breaks, you got to reteach oh, yeah. those rules because they don't have that at home. My first answer to the question was personally, I think that they should be able to move around often. But I think that yours saying always, because... In my mind, I was thinking that child who needs to be in the back of the classroom because they need to be able to move mm-hmm. more often. I am that child, by the way. I need to be able to do what I need to be able to do and hopefully, and hope that it isn't a distraction. And if it's just normal practice, then it's not going to be a distraction. But I, I also think about building it into the lessons, moving to different areas during learning, whether we count off and everybody goes into a different group or discussions, being held at different parts of the room. We could have, here's your group one, two, three, four, five, and every time go to one of those sections so that they're just used to that transition. So having designated group areas to go to during these sections, stretch breaks, stand and sits, and then connected to instructional activities. I mean, honestly, just moving into groups. So those count offs and having them work with people that they don't normally work with. It's just having them get up and intentionally go somewhere. And they can stand during their groups and they can sit during their groups if they need to, whatever it may be. The challenges I thought of is transitions can be difficult and especially for people who have sensory issues. I've seen transitions get too loud and it's hard for that person who has that audio and visual sensory issues. So, you know, loud talking, it can create distractions and it can be hard to get them back into their seats. So practice transitions mm-hmm. is something that I used to do for fire drills for my really young kiddos, one, one and a half to two, because when that happened, it was all of them were crying and screaming and scared. Mm-hmm. So we started doing practiced fire drills where I would just make the noise and like put my hand out like I was a flashing light and I would say the same thing that it said over the speaker to them. And the next time we had it, because we did them so often, they just went to the line Mm -hmm. and they were so used to it. So, you know, random saying, oh, if we need to get up, we're going to practice our transition. Instead of saying, like, let's do a stretch break, we're going to practice our transitions. We're going to get up and try to get to where we need to go and then walk back to our desks and see how quickly and efficiently we can do that. Yeah. And I think discussing the intent, like both you guys talked about, is really going to help what I've heard the most like the most often spoke argument against movement in classrooms and against that type of approach is that it's going to be too distracting or the kids are going to take advantage of you being a quote unquote like more lenient teacher 
in the idea of if there's a pacing area in the back, if you have it elaborated since the first day that that is something to use if you need it to learn, not a social congregating area, because right. that's what I would see or think of is, okay, but are two or three kids going to say they need it, but really go stand back there and ignore you? But if you have it from the start that the room should be used in a way to help facilitate your learning and that these different tools are tools there to help you, I think that emphasis is what could really help with the different social challenges that might come with the idea of movement in a class. I also really linked, as you guys did, movement together with sensory. And so my other thoughts were budget allowing and in the correct situations, having little personal Tupperwares with like rice in them or something, instead of just a sensory station, having one that could be at your desk because something that works for one kid, as we know, isn't going to work for everybody. But if you can have it for them when they need it, that would be great. I had one of those, but it was a sensory station. Mm -hmm. But if you needed to walk away, you could go and there was a tub and you could grab your sensory out of there and you mm -hmm. could sit in the library where, but the library was still in a place where you could listen. Mm -hmm. So that was really helpful. I found that people would just quietly walk over there and grab their thing and come back when they were ready. But that was because we had established that this is okay to do and that everyone just ignore it. It's mm -hmm. just need to go do that and it's fine. And now mm -hmm. we're used to it and we, nobody pays attention to it because it's just people do it when they need to. And it helped eliminate a lot of, I feel like it helped eliminate a lot of behavioral issues. Oh, I can definitely see that. This reminds me of that TikTok that we saw that uh, one of our cohort put it on Discord. It reminds me of the teacher who, on the first day of school, has a bunch of Band-Aids. And she asked about a time that you got hurt. The first student said, oh, I hurt my elbow. And she mm -hmm. told this story about how she hurt her elbow. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And she handed a Band-Aid to her and mm -hmm. said, here's a Band-Aid for your elbow. Then she asked the next student. And the next student said, oh, this one time I fell and scratched my knee. And then she's like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Here's a Band-Aid for your elbow. Mm -hmm. And then the next friend, like the friend's like, that's not going to help. She's like, well, I'm sorry. That's what I got for a Band-Aid for your elbow. And then the next friend said, oh, I hurt my arm. And she's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Here's a Band-Aid for your elbow. And this taught the students that even though she was being fair and giving everybody the exact same tools in the exact same way, it's not what everyone needed. It wasn't yeah. equitable. Right. It was equal, but it wasn't equitable. Oh, yeah. And that's taught the students that each student may need something different to mm -hmm. meet their need, to meet what they need. That means one friend could be needing that sensory headphones. Not everybody's going to get sensory headphones because mm -hmm. it's not what everybody needs. Mm -hmm. And that helped facilitate the conversations later on in the class about being equitable, not equal. Yeah. And that really, it, it solidified it for her class and it really helped that metaphor of like, if a student does need to be helpful, mm -hmm. if you need to walk in the back of the classroom, that's okay. But it needs to be helpful. It's not just for you to go and ignore instruction mm -hmm. or that, like, like y'all were saying. Yeah, and that's a good first day activity as you're creating classroom rules mm -hmm. that everyone is involved in or classroom practices or whatever it may be you know, trying to find what your respect is and, and kind words, kind bodies, things like that. Because that that aligns with that teaching and, and seeing that before you decide on your rules could be a really 
powerful statement. Yeah. For ki- especially for kids mm-hmm. because they're visual and story visual and storytelling because they're thinking, well, why would I need that for my elbow? Like yeah. if I straight my knee, I don't need a band aid for my elbow. Exactly. Versus mm-hmm. I know there's the other one with the stools and the football field or whatever it is. Oh yeah, the image. But I feel like every child has hurt themselves at one point, whereas every child has not gone to watch a game. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that one is just a little bit more... Above their head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And thinking about that, I think over time they've realized that they may not need the fidget toy, they may need the fidget toy, but they're using respectfully in a way that is actually helpful to them. Going back, oh, this was my thought. I went on another tangent. Because I'm taking special education Mm -hmm. classes for my SPED endorsement. Keeping the rules simple, concise, mm-hmm. and only a few of them. So at Richville, you have the three R's, being respectful, being resilient, and being responsible. Ooh, I like that one. And so there's three, mm-hmm. but in those three rules, it explains what being responsible looks like, what being respectful looks like, and what being um, resilient looks like. like. You have 10 to 20 rules in your classroom. It's really hard to remember all those rules. I oh, can't yeah. remember all the rules right. that, yeah. that are in life, and so sometimes I have to... Go a little faster on yes. the road. And, yeah, that's a it's a speed limit, right? A small <laughs> amount of rules that encompass a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you can use them constantly because it may look different mm-hmm. for some someone else's respect may look different mm-hmm. than what your respect is, or however that may look for the students mm-hmm. in a classroom. And then you can understand the why because I remember rules that I didn't understand at the time, and so I wouldn't follow them. Versus. As an adult, if I were to hear those same rules, I would understand the why. And so you're more willing to follow something that you actually understand. And that's one of the reasons why. The because I said so statement is so irritating. <laughs> and the rules help solidify what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. As well as, like, they're simple, they're concise. And not only does your classroom follow them, mm-hmm. but they know when they go into the next classroom, they'll follow them. And mm-hmm. so those are rules keep continuing. It's not new rules for a different teacher mm-hmm. that they have to learn for the this, the, the year. Mm-hmm. It's and you it's follow a them. Yeah, mm-hmm. we like, all follow them. We're, we're all having the same rules. I'll respect you. You respect me. Right. Well, I'll keep trying my hardest to be here every mm-hmm. single day to teach you the best of my abilities. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to try your hardest to mm-hmm. learn to your best abilities, we're all with the same the same guidelines and the same respect. And your yeah. substitutes who come in if I can't be there are going to follow mm-hmm. those guidelines. Mm-hmm. Because it's a give and take. It's a give and take yeah. between you and your students. It's. I always think about it as I have to be on the same level mm-hmm. as them, because sometimes when I look at someone who isn't coming at me at my level, mm-hmm. even though I look at them, I do respect them. I also don't understand where they're coming from. Oh yeah. And therefore, that's it. It just makes it difficult for me. They're not following things mm-hmm. that I can follow. So it's the same thing. Having a test and expecting growth mindset when you're not allowed to go back and Mm -hmm. learn from the bad grade in order to get better Mm -hmm. is hard for me and that's that was hard for me all throughout high school but when I got into college they're like yeah we want you to actually learn this the point of this is to learn Mm -hmm. not to get a grade and I feel like that is a huge thing that I need to bring into my classroom and I know I'm going on a tangent but I really like it's that just, aspect of not failing, mm-hmm. like failing, like you can choose, yeah, like to get again. Also, but... like like pat, like pass and fail, like the grading system and everything. It's just not, it's not real life. Mm-hmm. It's not what we're going like when we go into the workforce and when we're teaching them to go into the workforce and follow careers mm-hmm. and stuff. 
You're not hired or fired. It's not hired or fired. You, you, there's, there's a learning process and you are not just, it's not just for a test. It's for Mm -hmm. growth mindset for group and community of that workforce. Mm -hmm. So it's, we as individuals and going through this program will come up with a different mindset to be able to help students actually become the best versions of themselves they possibly can in a safe environment. Yeah. Because if everything in our life is a spectrum, why shouldn't classrooms be? Yes. (laughs) Because I needed that so badly. It was really important to me that I create that in my classroom Mm -hmm. because it is the reason that I left school in the first place. Yeah. It was because I didn't get that. And the fact is I could have been done by now had that been given to me. And had I not gotten four teachers in a row saying, if you don't do it exactly the same way as me, then you fail, even though everybody, even if you get it correct every single time. Now we will think about our responses from the anticipation guide at the beginning of this podcast. We will see and discuss any changes and see which parts helped clarify our understanding of the pedagogy of cultural and linguistic responsiveness. So as we remember, the first statement was culturally and linguistically responsive pedagogy is curriculum. And due to all of us having already this idea of what curriculum is and that being affirmed throughout this chapter, my answer did not change. It is still a no from me. And I also was a disagree for me as well. Same. I kept it at disagree. And I actually hadn't talked about that one in the first part. I was thinking about it and I think of it more of a a practice that can be done within curriculum. So yes. it is part of it, but it, it isn't curriculum. Right. I think the curriculum is the what mm-hmm. and the how and why is pedagogy. And yes. so they're not the same. They're interacting and like commingling mm-hmm. within the same space because they're in, not interchangeable, but they are to be enhanced one another. And so that's why I said I disagreed. Like yeah. salad and dressing? Mm-hmm. It enhances the dressing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or enhances the salad, sorry. Yes. <laughs> The next statement was, in using CLR, I should abandon what I know to be successful with students. Once again, that's a no. The idea of abandoning what you know about just about everything just doesn't sit right with me. And I also disagree because you need to take who you are and bring it into the classroom, your culture, as well as their culture, Mm -hmm. into the space. Now, should you adapt to meet what is appropriate? Yes. But should you abandon? No. I also put disagree on that one. I think that things that have worked in the past can be utilized within the cultural and linguistic responsiveness. And I I think that it's meant to be something that allows us as teachers to be malleable. Mm -hmm. The third one was CLR strategies and activities can be infused into broad instructional areas. And of course, we even discussed that in our answers on the podcast here today. Jamie took it on as a STEM lesson. Thomas brought us into architecture and I'm over here with the story time. So (laughs) as you can see, it's definitely able to be infused into so many different ways. And I agree with you as well, Annabelle. Agree. Here, here. (laughs) Huzzah. Huzzah. And our final one, all the activities or strategies must always be culturally or linguistically responsive. This was the one that I think became a little bit more gray for me just because we did see that sliding scale from traditional to culturally responsive. And the textbook went on to talk about how All of those elements do have a place in the classroom, but I still think I come back to the idea that even if you're not actively using a culturally responsive strategy, it's most likely ingrained into your other elements, or at least in the back of your mind a bit. 
it's still if you're not choosing it's still infused so I would agree with it I, I would say agree because you're whether you're intentional or not intentional it's still embedded into the work you do ideally yeah and mine was that agree and disagree kind of thing at the beginning and I, I mean I definitely am at agree mm-hmm. I really was at the beginning it was just how can we use this non-culturally and linguistic response as a teaching tool but then because I'm using that as a teaching tool I was also bringing in that strategy anyway it it was basically agree at the beginning and so I just changed it to simply agree rather than agree slash disagree in this episode we took a deep dive into pedagogical practices theories and applications We discussed our understandings and belief of what being culturally and linguistically responsive teaching looks like. We looked at how, when done properly and with true understanding of the needs of the individuals present, each part of the classroom, engagement of the student and reflective culturally linguistic responsive teacher and intentional planned environment could create an optimal learning space. We will be using this lens as we prepare to walk into our first classrooms this year. We appreciate your continued support and for listening to us process our understanding of this vital and crucial content. Thank you for coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.